Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 46 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And we hope you guys enjoyed, as much as we did, the incredible six-part series that we just completed on the question of whether or not the 2020 election was stolen. We looked at all of the key swing states that were most in dispute. We looked at Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Georgia in that order. That took many, many hours of research, many hours of recording, cutting it all up and putting it together into individual episodes based on each state for your guys' convenience. And we hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. It was definitely the most in-depth project we have done here at The Right Take by far. And we very well may consider doing more deep dives in the future on other large-scale, wide-implication topics. But we are back to our regular format for this episode, ladies and gentlemen, and we have got a fun episode for you guys today. We will be talking about, of course, the latest globalist plot to import migrants into the United States in order to shift demographics and solidify the Democrats' hold on political power. We will be talking about how just as one ridiculous race hoax has finally been put to bed for good, another one sprouts up in its place like a severed head of Hydra. You cut off one head and three more fake race hoax pop up. Uh, but to start off, we I, we had to talk about this. Um, back in episode number 33, we dunked on the end of the political career of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. That was episode number 33, very appropriately titled, Cuomo Sleeps with the Fishes. And the picture we used for that, by the way, on our website post, the thumbnail image, was the side-by-side -side split screen of him when he appeared on his younger brother's show. His younger brother, of course, Chris Cuomo, was keyword being was host of Cuomo primetime, which was the highest rated show on CNN. And of course, being brothers, he gave him, you know, much uh, more biased treatment than most hosts would. And the joke, the screenshot in question, I love this. It was from back when he was really popular as governor, you know, everyone was singing Andrew Cuomo's praises because he was, he was the antithesis to Donald Trump. And Chris was holding up a giant fake Q-tips, joking, oh, this is the only Q-tip big enough to do a swab of your nose, Andrew. And Andrew Cuomo just has this scrunched up <laughs> laugh face. And it's and Chris Cuomo smiling so innocently. And oh, oh, I love foreshadowing. This timeline is so great. It really feels like a great big script sometimes. Because now we joked about, of course, how Andrew Cuomo sleeps with the fishes. That, of course, of course, being a Godfather reference. Because I mean, a they're New York, they're Italians, mafia references. Why not? But also, of course, infamously, a guy referred to Chris Cuomo as Fredo in a bar, comparing him to the notoriously weak and naive Godfather character, the younger brother of the main character, Michael Corleone. And Chris Cuomo freaked out at him and like, "Don't you call me that? That's the N word for Italians!" And he was just so angry. We huh. want to be an oppressed minority too. <laughs> well. Now, Chris Fredo Cuomo is sleeping with the fishes too, ladies and gentlemen. Chris Cuomo has been fired from CNN. Womp, womp, womp. Uh, so, for those of you, just a recap of the Andrew Cuomo scandal that started this all. He was accused of sexually harassing multiple women in his office, in his office and on his campaign. And Attorney General Letitia James released a report back in August declaring that he had credibly uh, harassed and or maybe even assaulted up to 11 women, some of whom were still current staffers for him at the time. And at that point, all the tables turned. Everyone turned on him. Biden, Pelosi, Schumer, they all called on him to resign. And he ultimately resigned in late August after insisting repeatedly that he would never, ever resign. 
So where does Chris Cuomo fit into all this? Now, obviously, as his brother, he admitted back in May that when the scandal was still kind of unraveling, he came clean and admitted that he had talked to his brother privately about the whole thing and been willing to offer some brotherly advice because, you know, they're brothers, you know, of course he's going to do that. And there were questions of whether or not this would conflict with his job as a supposedly unbiased show host on a news network. And apparently the executives at CNN, you know, Jeff Zucker, the president there, were fine with his initial explanation as long as he, you know, kept it very, very minimal and obviously didn't talk about it on a show. He didn't talk about the scandals on a show because why would he? However, all is not well with Chris Cuomo's conduct or rather what he claims he didn't do, which in fact he actually did do. On November 29th, Attorney General Letitia James, who, by the way, I did not know this until I did some research just today in preparation for the episode. She's not running for governor anymore. She is Attorney General of New York. She basically is the one who brought down Cuomo. She announced that she was going to run for governor next year against Cuomo's lieutenant governor, now governor, Kathy Hochul. Uh, but apparently, I guess she decided to pull an Eric Swalwell and run for all of five minutes because apparently she dropped out and she's now back to running for re-election as attorney general. So I guess maybe she saw the writing on the wall that she was not going to win this election no matter what. Uh, but either way, Attorney General James released a report indicating, uh, including text message conversations, screenshots, and phone records showing that Chris Cuomo was much, much more involved in trying to put out fires and control the PR crisis on his brother's campaign than he previously let on. This included texting directly with Melissa DeRosa. Remember that name? She was one of Cuomo's top aides, Governor Cuomo's top aides, who played a crucial role in the nursing home scandal in deliberately covering up and doctoring the information on how many elderly New Yorkers died of COVID in nursing homes based on his order back in March of 2020. And of course, she resigned shortly before he resigned. He was texting DeRosa, you know, basically asking like, hey, what can I do to help, you know, craft the, uh, the messaging of coming out against these allegations? And he even used his media sources to try to dig up dirt on the accusers, you know, personal information and whatnot. And he even went so far as to try to talk to Ronan Farrow, you know, one of the, the reporter who really put out a lot of Me Too related stories. You know, he was one of the leading figures in the Me Too movement. He tried to reach out to Ronan Farrow to ask basically, hey, are you going to be releasing any stories on my brother anytime soon to try to give them a heads up? Hey, this Ronan Farrow story is coming out. So really, really dirty stuff that Zucker says uh, he did not tell them about, obviously. So that came out on November 29th. He was indefinitely suspended from CNN on November 30th, and on November 4th, he got the pink slip. He was informed that he would be fired, and that was the end of his show. Uh, Anderson Cooper had to make up for that gap by doing a second hour of his show, because his show comes before Cuomo's, so he had to scramble at the last minute, the day of, to do a whole second hour of TV to make up for Cuomo being gone, which I feel bad for Anderson Cooper's team. Not him, but I feel bad for his team having to make that happen at the last minute. So he is gone. He is no more. And from there, it has just spiraled completely out of control. And we'll include links to all of these in the description. He is now facing his own sexual assault allegation, Chris Cuomo, uh, an unknown accuser who is represented by Deborah Katz. Remember her? She was one of the mm -hmm. attorneys in the, uh, in the Kavanaugh allegations. Uh, these accusations stem back to a previous network, not CNN, but one of Cuomo's former co-workers at that unnamed network. Uh, he, his book that was going to come out in 2022, courtesy of the publishing house HarperCollins, uh, that's been canceled. They are not going to release his book now. Uh, he quit his Sirius XM radio show, apparently on his own. I mean, he may or may not have been forced to resign, but he, he quit there. And now he may even be getting ready to sue his former network over what he alleges is a violation of his contract because, you know, he was contracted to continue to be a host there for several more years. And he alleges that they may have basically uh, stolen up to $18 million of salary from him. So he's going to be suing them for that much. So it's all just spiraled completely out of control. Oh, this is great too. Another one, an 
<laughs> All this fell apart in the span of just a week, two weeks. A former producer for Cuomo's show has also been accused of sexual misconduct. 44-year-old John Griffin was indicted by a federal grand jury for allegedly luring young girls as young as seven to his Good apartment grief. for, quote, sexual subservience training. The whole QAnon thing about the whole media industrial complex and government being run by a cabal pedophiles. of pedophiles. Satanic is a little, pedophiles. Satanic pedophiles a little out there. But the thing is, these elites continue to give conspiracy theorists like QAnoners more and more material to work with. Because that's the thing. They're, yeah, they take it way too far. The QAnon people do. But there absolutely are pedophiles in entertainment. I mean, look, the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing. Look at you know, Prince Andrew and all the people that brought down. And now, look, it's just, again, seven years old. I just can't even. But yeah, so that... I just got to reflect on this one more time and include some thoughts that I, I looked back on the Cuomo episode we originally did, and I just had to include this as well. All this got started, this absolute mess, like a house of cards, fell apart with one card pulled out. It all comes crashing down in an instant. This all happened because Andrew Cuomo, like Michael Corleone in the Godfather movies, was so arrogant in his power that he believed he could surpass his father, Mario Cuomo. We talked about that, the former governor who served three terms. He believed he could become the new standard bearer of the Cuomo name. One of the, up until recently, was one of the biggest political dynasties in America today. And he believed he could do what his father couldn't. Again, his father served three terms and sought a fourth term in 1994, which, as we know, was the year of the Republican Revolution, when he was beaten by a Republican challenger by the name of George Pataki. And Cuomo believed, you know, prior to this, that he would run and easily win his fourth term in 2022, the fourth term that his father never had. And he believed he was untouchable. He believed that he was inevitable, that there was nothing that could possibly happen that could ruin him. He was, again, he was propped up for a while as basically when it was believed that maybe Trump would win the 2020 election, that Cuomo would be the front runner for the 2024 nomination, not Kamala Harris, not, you know, Bernie or Hillary or Kamala or anyone, that he would be the future of the Democratic Party. He was this close because even his father, you know, was speculated to possibly be a presidential candidate, but never did take the plunge. Cuomo believed, I'm going to do what my father couldn't do. I will win a fourth term. I will be president one day. It's not just that you are now definitely not the standard bearer of your name anymore, Andrew. You brought down your entire family. You raised the Cuomo family to the ground. The reputation has been beyond destroyed and buried. Not just for you, but for your brother. You got everyone involved in this. You, I mean, your father, your father, his father died in 2015, so you could say his father is clean of this. But the name is not clean of this. People are now never again going to think of Mario Cuomo. They're going to think of Andrew Cuomo, the love gov, as they called it, the guy whose defense literally was, oh, I'm not perverted, I'm just Italian. <laughs> well, it does kind of play into the Italian stereotype that these people will do whatever they have to for their family. <laughs> oh, man. But in this case, it was just, it was too much. And now, yeah, when they hear Cuomo, they either are going to think of Andrew, more likely, or they may think of, you know, Chris Cuomo, the host of the Mickey Mouse TV show on CNN, who also had his own problems and also got fired, didn't even finish out his contract, quit his radio show, he lost his book, he's lost everything. The family is just gone in less than a year. I can't think of anybody who fell this fast and this hard from power in modern American political history. 
So to move on for the first topic of the day, uh, this is, I'll acknowledge this is a bit dated. We obviously did get a bit of a backlog of the news cycle while we were doing our massive uh, election fraud investigation. We, of course, did miss the Rittenhouse verdict. That was the big thing that we missed. Uh, and the Aubrey, Ahmed Aubrey trial verdict as well. We missed those uh, also due to the Thanksgiving vacation. Of course, we were both away. But we have to come back and cover at least one thing. I think this is something that is well worth covering. And that is the entire saga of how another civil war got started in the House Republican caucus over an anime video. So let's backtrack a little bit. So Paul Gozar, congressman from Arizona, he did a thing. This, this was just too good. I remember seeing this when first posted on Twitter. And I, at the time, thought, oh, this is another great meme that is going to come and go. And this is hilarious. Paul Gozar posted a video from a very popular anime series called Shigeki no Kyojin, or the American translation, Attack on Titan. It is one of the most popular anime series of all time. It's a global phenomenon that some have compared to Game of Thrones. And his team, his he's got an A-plus communications team going for him. Can we, just, can we just acknowledge that? He clearly has some Zoomers working in his office to be able to put this video together. They took the original opening sequence of the series and edited it with a lot of footage of the border. It was primarily focused on immigration. It was showing all these migrants, these hordes just pouring across the border, across the river, flooding into the country. And they edited it to say, instead of Attack on Titan, they said Attack of the Immigrants, which <laughs> that, was, that was definitely a nice touch. And then they get to the meat of the, the controversy of the video. So just to summarize the series for the context, because nobody else will do this, Attack on Titan is set in, a, in another world where... The last remnants of humanity, apparently, are all living behind three giant walls that are like 150 feet tall because outside these walls are massive man-eating monsters that resemble humans that are called titans. And they just roam around and they kill and eat people. And the last remnants of humanity believe that all the rest of the world has been killed off by these titans. And the only way to fight them is to use what they call a omnidirectional maneuvering gear, ODM gear. Full disclosure, yes, I watched the show. That's how I know all this stuff. It's it's a good series, okay? Don't judge me. This ODM gear, which combines grappling hooks with uh, brief bursts of air, kind of like miniature jetpacks that allow them to fly around and do some Spider-Man spins and tricks in the air. And, and they use swords to slash the back of the Titan's necks, the nape of their neck, which is the weak spot, and kill them. So for the context there, the opening sequence of the original season, because there are four seasons right now, shows the main character, the main protagonist, Aaron Yeager, swinging around and doing cool tricks with his friends. And Paul Gozar's face has been superimposed onto Aaron's head. And a handful of other Republicans, including Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, their faces have been superimposed onto the other supporting characters around him. And they eventually come by uh, and see a Titan. And the Titan has Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's face superimposed onto it. So, of course, the Aaron slash Gozar character swings up into the air, does a cool spin, and slashes the back of the titan's neck and kills it, because of course that's what happens. And then eventually flies up over the wall and comes face-to-face with the colossal titan, which is one of the main antagonists of the series, a huge titan that's taller than all the others. And he leaps at it with his swords and freeze frame of him about to face the titan. And that titan has Joe Biden's face superimposed onto it. So it's, it's a great, it's a very high quality meme. It was very well done, and I thought it was funny. I had no idea when I first saw that video the absolute madness that would ensue from that. So the mainstream media overwhelmingly, just overnight, the narrative suddenly became, this is depicting him murdering AOC. This is showing Paul Gozar violently killing AOC. And it's a meme, but they obviously can't take it. They they take it way too seriously. They can't have any fun. So there began to become calls. So calls began arising for Gozar to be removed from his committees and to be punished for this. So eventually, yes, 
The Democrats, being the way they are, they called up a vote for a resolution to censure Paul Gozar and remove him from his committees. Now, again, this is, we got to establish, this is unprecedented that usually when it comes to committee assignments for members of either party, that party's leadership deals with that. They choose those people to be on the committees in the first place. They choose to eventually remove them. That, of course, is what happened to uh, Steve King, who I think wrongfully, of course, was removed from his committee assignments by Republican leadership after the New York Times edited his quotes to make them sound a lot worse than they actually were. But earlier this year, of course, the Democrats voted overwhelmingly with 11 Republicans on their side, voted to remove Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committees for stuff that she said before she was a member of Congress for allegedly you know, supporting the, uh, the QAnon theory and whatnot. And that was an unprecedented move because usually the minority party decides that. But the, major the majority party in this case said, no, we decide now we don't like people on your committees anymore. And now they just did to Paul Gozar. So ultimately, uh, a more party line vote, all Democrats plus two Republicans. Gee whiz, big surprise here. The two Republicans were the January 6th committee Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who also voted to remove him. And a third Republican, Ohio's David Joyce, simply voted present. So first, I just got to talk about the the, for the obvious double standards here. I know it's very cliche to say, can you imagine if the roles were reversed? But you got to imagine if the roles were reversed here, especially because it's AOC was the, the supposed target of the video. Is AOC prides herself on being, you know, a cult, very culturally in tune because she's young, she's a, a millennial. And you know, if AOC had done this, if AOC was the one to post a video showing her and her friends, the squad, especially because they're all like BFFs, like, you know, doing their thing, showing them lunging at a Titan with Trump's face on it, you know, the media would be, the social media would be, yes, Queen Slay. Oh my God, this is so hip. This is why she's so in tune with the kids. This is why she's so popular. And honestly, I will say this much. If a Democrat had done this exact same video, Attack on Titan, mocking Republicans, I would acknowledge the cleverness of it. I mean, as a fan of the show, I would be able to acknowledge because it already has been used to attack Trump in the past because, of course, a big, as I mentioned in the summary, a big factor in the series are giant walls. So people joke, oh, the, this is the kind of wall that Trump would like to build, right? So people have used it to make fun of Trump in the past. I would acknowledge it and say, yeah, it's, it's a funny meme and obviously this is not violent. If Republicans started throwing up a fit about AOC posting Attack on Titan video against Gozar, I would say that they're overreacting too. It's a meme. Get over it. We live in the era of politics as memes, with especially after Trump. Memes are a big part of political messaging. But you also have to acknowledge the double standards of the press. And I saw this in real time. Immediately after the video was posted, initial stories did more or less what I just did. They would summarize the show very briefly. They mentioned, you know, it's a show about giants that eat humans and Gozar's face is superposed onto Aaron Yeager, the main character. They would summarize it. But then days and days went on and weeks went on as the censure got closer. They completely stopped doing that. All they would do was then in mentioning the video all the coverage, all the outlets would say pretty much the same thing, roughly paraphrased here. Gozar violently posted a violent video showing him violently killing AOC. Did we mention it was violent? Like they would throw in the word violent at least five times. They wouldn't describe what the video was. They, some of them wouldn't even not even mention it was animated. They would just say Gozar posted a video showing him killing AOC as if it was like a, a deep fake of him walking up and shooting her in the head or something. So just completely dishonest, but that's what the media does. This is, it's like, you know, January 6th, or Charlottesville for that matter, this is a case, a clear-cut case of the media's obfuscation and outrageous omission of facts, deliberately allowing one side of the political aisle and the media, their lapdogs in the media, to warp the original story 
whatever you may say about the original story, to warp it into something much worse and completely different than what it actually is. They turned a bunch of boomers walking around in the Capitol taking selfies in Nancy Pelosi's office into, this is literally the worst thing since the Civil War. But so Gozar is now only the second Republican to be unilaterally removed from his committees by the Democrats. And I got to just point this out first off uh, with regards to MTG being the first. We did debate this way back. Oh, this feels so long ago. Episode seven. This was, I think, one of our best segments. And it is, in fact, one of our most viewed segments. We debated. You and I had a debate, Jacob, on the merits of MTG or the lack thereof. But I did mention back then, I didn't name Gozar, but I did back then say Lauren Boebert. I said they would go after other Republicans the same way they went after MTG. And now, of course, I simply got the order wrong. They went after Gozar first. Uh, and we'll come back to Boebert in just a bit. Now, Gozar, of course, had a chance to speak in his defense on the floor of the House while the resolution was being debated. And we have that speech here. Uh, this is courtesy of C-SPAN. Thank you, Madam Speaker. I rise today to address and reject the mischaracterization accusations from many in this body that the cartoon from my office is dangerous or threatening. It was not. And I reject the false narrative categorically. I do not espouse violence towards anyone. I never have. It was not my purpose to make anyone upset. I voluntarily took the cartoon down, not because it was itself a threat, but because some thought it was. Out of compassion for those who generally felt offense, I self-censored. Last week, my staff posted a video depicting a policy battle regarding amnesty for tens of millions of illegal aliens. This is an enemy that speaks to young voters who are too often overlooked. Even Twitter, the left's mouthpiece, did not remove the cartoon, noting it was in the public's interest for it to remain. The cartoon directly contributes to the understanding and the discussion of the real-life battle resulting from this administration's open border policies. This body is considering passage of Mr. Biden's reckless socialist Marxist $4.9 trillion spending bill that provides $100 billion for amnesty to tens of millions of illegal aliens already in this country. This is what the left doesn't want the American people to know. Our country is suffering from the plague of illegal immigration. I don't stop pointing this out, nor will I. Millions of illegal aliens, drugs, and human traffickers are being led in and moved around our country in the dead of night, all condoned by this administration. For this cartoon, some in Congress suggest I should be punished. I have said decisively, there is no threat in the cartoon other than the threat to immig the immigration poses to our country. And no threat was intended by my staff or me. The American people deserve to have their voices heard in Congress. No matter how much the left tries to quiet me, I will continue to speak out against amnesty for illegal aliens, defend the rule of law, and advance the American first agenda. Just if I must join Alexander recognized 30 seconds. If I must join Alexander Hamilton, the first person attempted to be censored by this House, so be it. It is done. Madam Speaker, I yield back. Can we just take a moment to acknowledge, <laughs> by the first off, uh, I love, he, he had the absolute madman compared himself to Alexander Hamilton. What a legend. That is just so great. But I like, he briefly acknowledged the whole video controversy, and then he immediately pivoted to get off defense and back on offense to say, the point of this video is the threat of immigration, the threat that immigration, he didn't say illegal immigration, the threat that immigration 
poses to this country. That is how you stay on point. And props to Gozar for giving that speech. That was everything he needed to say. Well, the reason why the Democrats saw this video as a threat isn't because they actually thought that it would inspire people to attack AOC and other Democrats. It was because they recognized, like he does in his speech, that this is aimed at the younger generation. Yep. And they can't have any conservative breaking through to the younger generation because that's something that they see as completely their domain. They see that themselves as having a lock on the younger generation. So when you produce something like this, this is definitely a threat. They're going to do whatever they can to censure you, to shut you up, to shut it down. Exactly. That's that's what they can't stand. Again, like I said, it was a very well-made meme that is appealing to younger people because, like I said, Attack on Titan is a massive cultural phenomenon. It's more popular than most anime. It's more mainstream. It's like kind of like what The Dark Knight was for comic book movies. It drew in a lot of people who normally don't care for comics. And primarily millennials and Zoomers watch Attack on Titan. And it's still ongoing. The second half of the fourth and final season is coming out uh, next year. So that's why they realize this is a threat. And they're like, oh, wow, this guy's an effective messenger. We have to take him out. And we got to of course, talk a little bit about AOC's speech during this because she did give a couple of comments on the floor of the house. And I just have to talk about this because God, this woman is so fake. I cannot stand her. But this is one of her comments that she made during her speech. That what we do so long as we claim that it is a joke doesn't matter. That what we say here doesn't matter. That our actions every day as elected leaders in the United States of America doesn't matter. That this chamber and in it doesn't matter. And I am here to rise to say that it does. Our work here matters. Our example matters. There is meaning in our service. Again, she is jealous because she's supposed to be the hip and the young one that the kids listen to, not someone like Gozar. And that's why she cannot stand this. So the, the absolute fake tears the pretentiousness of it all she can turn around and make these kinds of jokes and comments all day long she can say that communities are justified in rioting if they're poor enough but then when gozar posts a high quality meme you know that's unacceptable that's dangerous we can't allow that i gotta just take a moment to acknowledge this by the way if you go to the wikipedia page because of course now the censure is included in gozar's wikipedia and you go to the wikipedia page for List of United States representatives expelled, censured, or reprimanded. And the list of censured representatives particularly. It's a table listing all members dating as far back to 1832. The very first uh, representative, William Stanberry of Ohio, who was censured for, quote, insulting the Speaker of the House. You just got to take a moment to look through this list. And a lot of them are based just strictly on rude language because, you know, you, you can't. There's some rude language you can't say on the floor of the House of representatives. And that's the cause for a lot of them. Unparliamentary language. But there's so many, so many other offenses for which they removed. And you look through the serious offenses, uh, bribery, sexual misconduct, all these, these horrible crimes, actual crimes for which they could actually be, you know, they could face criminal charges and go to jail. And throughout our history, dating back to the 1800s, and then you see the latest offense for which someone is censured is posting an anime video. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully he'll be returned right back to his committees where he belongs when the Republicans get back in office, you know, the majority in 2022. And again, this is another thing people have brought up. I don't think this will happen because I don't trust McCarthy, but this has been – Republicans like McCarthy and others have warned, hey, you guys are setting a precedent. We could very well turn around and do the same thing and remove some of you guys from your committees once we're in power again, uh, like Ilhan Omar, AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Eric Swalwell, who literally slept with a Chinese spy. 
And that is actually what is hinted at, and we're moving right along here to the very next thing. It's a serious, it's a domino effect, this whole saga that, again, starts with an anime video, leads to this. So this happened during that same debate on the censure to, on the resolution of censure Gozar. This is from, I've mentioned her name already, Lauren Boebert. She nuked the floor of the house. This is glorious. The speaker has designated the floor to discuss members' inappropriate actions, shall we? The Jihad Squad member from Minnesota has paid her husband, <laughs> and not her brother husband, the other one, <laughs> for a million dollars in campaign funds. This member is allowed on the Foreign Affairs Committee while praising terrorists. True. A Democrat chairwoman incited further violence in the streets outside of a courthouse. And then the cherry on top. My colleague and three-month presidential candidate from California, who is on the Intelligence Committee, slept with Fang Fang, a Chinese spy. Let me say that again. A member of Congress who receives classified briefings was sleeping with the enemy. This is unacceptable, and this would never be... time's expired. Gentlemen from Florida. Bravo. That was... I was waiting. This is what I was waiting for. I was waiting for someone to come out and say all of that, especially about Ilhan Omar and her foreign interests. Rashida Tlaib will be another one to mention, but again, that's that's topic for another day. She held nothing back. It's like, okay, screw this. We know this isn't about, you know, unparliamentary language. We're going to say, I'm going to say what I feel like saying and what a lot of Americans feel like saying that they, that they would be allowed to say on the streets if they saw a member of Congress on the streets versus something you can't say on the floor of the house or you'll get reprimanded by the speaker. So that was glorious. Until about a week later, Lauren Boebert apologized on Twitter. I have the tweet here. Quote, I apologize to anyone in the Muslim community I offended with my comment about Representative Omar. I have reached out to her office to speak with her directly. There are plenty of policy differences to focus on without this unnecessary distraction. I don't End think quote. she was talking about the speech, was she? She was right. talking about something else. That's what, that's, I was confused on that at first because I didn't hear the story until later. Apparently, this was not in reference to that speech. This was in reference to another comment she made about Omar, which I find strange. This comment she makes about Omar is less offensive than what she said on the floor. She explicitly called out the fact that Omar married her brother. And that's not what she apologized for, but though she apologized for this, which this is a video she posted explaining, kind of summarizing the whole situation for us, including recent developments that have now seen her kind of backtrack on the apology and go on the offense against Ilhan Omar again. This is Lauren with a quick update on a phone call I had today with squad member Ilhan Omar. I had reached out to her Friday and three days later, I was able to connect with her on the phone because I wanted to let her know directly that I had reflected on my previous remarks. Now, as a strong Christian woman who values faith deeply, I never want anything I say to offend someone's religion. So I told her that, even after I put out a public statement to that effect, she said that she still wanted a public apology because what I had done wasn't good enough. So I reiterated to her what I had just said. She kept asking for a public apology. So I told Ilhan Omar that she should make a public apology to the American people for her anti-American, anti-Semitic, anti-police rhetoric. She continued to press and I continued to press back. And then Representative Omar hung up on me. Rejecting an apology and hanging up on someone is part of cancel culture 101 and a pillar of the Democrat party. 
So apparently this apology and this whole kerfuffle, this back and forth and the hanging up on her and everything, that all stems from an incident where apparently she was in an elevator and saw Ilhan Omar like running to try to get into the elevator and almost failing to make it in. And she made a joke to one of her staffers or something when Ilhan Omar got in the elevator with them and said, oh, it's okay, guys. She's not wearing a backpack. Don't worry. So the joke being obviously that being a reference to like suicide bombers, which that's a funny joke. First of all, that's a funny joke. And that's definitely not nearly as fiery as what she said about her marrying a brother or anything. But she apologized over that. So, well, I mean, I, the reason why I find that joke distasteful is because of the, the fact that it's 2021. If she had said something like this in like 2003, 2002. Oh, 2005, yeah. even 2011, it'd been like, yeah, that's, that's pretty funny. But because it's relevant, I, would, I wouldn't have gotten it. Like if she had said, like if I had been entering the, the elevator, point. I just, I would have been like, Oh, she's not wearing a backpack. Okay, why do I care? That would have been that's, that's yeah, kind of kind of dated. It. Yeah, that is a dated joke. I mean, once you know the joke, it's funny. But obviously, the number one rule of comedy is you should not ever explain your jokes. If you explain the joke, then then it's no joke, mm-hmm. as the Joker once said. <laughs> so that's that whole situation. Um, so the question that's got to be asked here with regards to that whole scenario is. Why? Why Lauren Boebert even bother apologizing in the first place? It was a funny joke, and your speech on the floor of the house was great. There was no need to apologize for that. That was just, all that did was that completely threw away all the goodwill you earned from the base for finally standing up and saying something to their faces that we've all wanted to say. And you prove that you're just kind of wishy-washy here. I mean, my or my initial theory, I think we talked about this off-air, Jacob, and you kind of confirmed this theory, is that I think someone from House leadership went to Lauren Boebert and said, hey, you you work on this now and issue an apology or else we mm-hmm. may have to punish you. And you said that that is what happened? That's That was my suspicion. Oh, you're, oh, okay. So we hadn't confirmed it, but we believe that Kevin McCarthy or somebody got to her and told her that. So we don't know for sure. But on that note, there is actually a little bit of insider baseball here that I have to report for you guys. This is from a while ago, but this is definitely worth mentioning. So a while back, I was at a house party with some friends uh, from the time I was living in uh, intern housing here in D.C. when I was still mm, doing several internships before I landed a full-time job. And one of my friends went on to work for Lauren Brobert's office. And she was a younger girl, like younger than me, like in her early 20s, I think. And I saw her and I asked what she was doing. And she's like, oh, I work for Lauren Boebert now. And I immediately, I was very enthusiastic. I'm like, oh, congratulations. That's so great. You know, she's one of my favorite members of Congress. You know, she and Marjorie Taylor Greene and others, they're all wonderful. And she immediately got this disgusted look on her face and said, oh, please don't compare my boss to MTG. I don't like that. And I immediately, most people, you know, in the DC decorum is, oh, I'm sorry I offended you. Okay, sorry. Let's move on. Awkwardly. I, of course, unapologetically, I'm like, no, wait, hang on. Why Why does that offend you? MTG's great, and your boss is great. And she's like, no, we just don't like MTG. No, we're, we're not the same. She's different from her. And I'm like, oh, come on. You you shouldn't be afraid of, you know, associating with MTG. I mean, if nothing else, you know, they go after MTG like crazy, the left does, and they want to go after your boss in a very similar way. And she was just kind of like, eh, whatever. I, I, we're different, and we're keeping it different. So that's that. But I have heard since from other friends of mine who know other people in her office, other millennials, by the way, feel the same thing. And they frequently tell the congresswoman not to affiliate with MTG, not to go to any public events with her or campaign with her or anything and keep her distance and say, oh, we're separate from you. We're MTG and Lauren Boebert are not the same. And it's always these younger millennials, these young professionals, these up and coming that who have the mentality of boomers, of neocons, of conservative ink, and want to appease that leadership, that establishment. So they don't rock the boat and they don't associate with supposedly the most toxic Republican in Congress, although I guess it's a contest between MTG and Gozar at this point. 
But I have to ask, what do these Bobert staffers think is going to happen? What do they think is going to happen if they just disavow MTG enough that the left is going to leave Lauren Bobert alone? If they just keep calling MTG icky? Of course not. No, no. If tomorrow MTG was removed from the picture, who do you think the left would go after next? Who would it be? It would be, I mean, either Gozar this one. I mean, they already more or less have taken his scalp, so they moved on from him. It would be Lauren Bobert. And I think now more than likely, more likely than ever, they are going to go after Lauren Bobert next. And they're getting ready to fire up to take her off of her committees next. And I know this. Well, first off, because I remember, I'm old enough to remember this. Remember in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, Jacob, when Lauren Bobert was one of the first members of Congress who was accused of conspiring with the protesters. Mm-hmm. She was allegedly seen giving tours of the Capitol building to people who were later involved in the protest. She was showing them possible ingress points and how to infiltrate the Capitol. She was conspiring with them. She, she's a terrorist. They were saying that right after January 6th, like alongside Josh Hawley. They accused Josh Hawley of, you know, he 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 raised a fist in a gesture towards the, uh, the crowd as a symbol of solidarity. Clearly, he's in on it. They are always trying to go after these people. And when they are directly tied to the January 6th thing, you know... That's how they really want these people gone sooner or later. They may, their taste has been satisfied. Their hunger has been satisfied for now by Gozar, but I think they're not done before the end of this term. I think they are going to go for Bobert next. Well, this, this attitude by these Bobert staffers, it comes from the belief that the left has still has the ability to write history. And this is what we're going to get into when we get into the main topic on how the, how academia, the media industrial complex, how the the entire Democratic Party establishment as it has existed since the days of JFK and LBJ, that they have the ability because they control PBS, they control NPR, they control all of academia. They have the ability to write and define history and define characters in history however they desire. So in their minds, MTG is going to go down in history as this crackpot you know, from rural north northwestern Georgia that everyone loves to dunk on 50 years from now, and they don't want yep. their boss associated with her. Otherwise, she'll get the same treatment. Like the new Joseph McCarthy, basically. Exactly. It's it's their inability to see to, – to imagine anything better for the right. It's like they still live in this world where if we can be respectable, if we can kiss the butts of the people who run the establishment, then we won't be looked on poorly. Whenever it's like, why not just completely overthrow the establishment and become the establishment? Like exactly. You, like you like rather than criticize NPR and PBS, take them over. Like let's have NPR running document uh, documentaries and PBS running documentaries showing the January six protesters in a positive light over the next ten to twenty years. You know how they do this is they start sending out their most radical members first to kind of lay the groundwork that eventually is accepted by the establishment. And this is this is a heck of a speech by Cory Bush, a new late edition of the squad. Um, I There's no words. You just got to hear this to believe it. If we're serious about tackling the systems of entrenched white supremacy that stain every fiber of this country, <laughs> then we need to start right here, right in this capital. We need to start with this lying, Islamophobic, race-baiting, violence-inciting, white supremacist sentiment, (laughs) spreading, Christmas tree, gun-toting, elected (laughs) official who is out here straight up calling her colleagues terrorists. Lauren Boebert is a danger to this country. She is a danger to the Muslim staffers that work here. She is a danger to her fellow members of Congress. Hang on, hang on. Let me let me go find the kitchen sink. I don't think she threw that in yet. But my goodness, every how many adjectives was that? She missed. I, I think she forgot Holocaust denier. She forgot uh, anti-Semite. She forgot insurrectionist. She there's just a few things she left out. But otherwise, she she included pretty much everything, right? 
I guess Christmas trees are a racist now, apparently. I mean, but see, that's how it starts. She is a total whack job. She, uh, like I said, she kind of seems to have taken Ayanna Presley's place at the squad. Um, sorry, Ayanna. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think that is how it starts and is going to get worse. They clearly, I don't think they're done yet. I don't think they're just satisfied with MTG and Gozar. I think more people are on the chopping block and I think Bobert is right at the top of that list. So then, speaking of... MTG enters stage right, and after that initial apology from Bobert, she rightfully scolds her on Twitter and correctly says, quote, Never apologize to Islamic terrorist sympathizers, communists, or those who fund murder with our tax dollars. Ilhan Omar and the Jihad Squad are all three and are undeserving of an apology. Mm -hmm. Which, based, that's 100% correct. So then what happens? A new challenger enters the arena. Representative Nancy Mace of South Carolina, a freshman elected in 2020, enters stage left and proceeds to bash MTG in an interview on CNN, where she says, quote, I have time after time condemned my colleagues on both sides of the aisle for racist tropes and remarks that I find disgusting, and this is no different than any others, end quote. This is almost like a bar fight where out of nowhere you have a couple people rolling, and then another person just suddenly runs up and throws a left hook out of nowhere and just jumps into the fight just because they can. I don't know who Nancy Mace is. I've never heard of her before, but this well, is— Well, let's just give a little early life background on this woman. So she's—this is, this is something that the right needs to understand about the massive bureaucracy called the Department of Defense— and the Army and all the branches of the military that come out from underneath it. So this is Nancy Mace. She was born at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to United States Army officer James Emery Mace and school teacher Ann Mace. So both her parents are public servants. Um, she became the first woman to graduate from the Citadel's Corps of Cadets program. She, re she did, received a degree in business administration. Get this. She wrote a book called In the Company of Men, A Woman at the Citadel. So oh very obviously a feminist. Oh, oh, and she went on to earn a master's degree in journalism and mass communication. You're joking. From University of Georgia. And then she started a consulting business. So, so she's very obviously an army brat. She's also very obviously a bureaucratic brat. So she comes up in what would normally usher in a democratic life. You know, like she would, she would be your typical Democrat because she was born in North Carolina in a Republican state. She obviously – she goes to University of Georgia, another Republican state. So she, if she's going to enter politics, she has to become a Republican if she wants to get elected. She's kind of like a lot of conservative Democrats in the Northeast who run as Democrats just because that's what you have to be if you want to get into office when they're not really liberal. This is how a lot of people in the Southeast are. So, Well, that's good to know because apparently MTG was already well aware of this, and she held nothing back in mad respect for this. She fired right back after Mace did that CNN interview. On Twitter, MTG referred to Mace as, quote – the trash of the GOP conference, end yep, quote. Very well put. And then proceed to say, quote, just go hang with your real gal pals, the Jihad Squad. <laughs> Responding in her own tweet, Mace said, quote, what I'm not is a religious bigot or racist. You might want to try that over there in your little league, end quote. She also posted a follow-up tweet retweeting that MTG tweet saying, uh, this is what, uh, it was a series of emojis. She put first the emoji for a bat, the emoji for a pile of excrement, and the emoji for a clown, which is meant to literally translate to batshit crazy. Just total fireworks going off in the GOP conference as a result of that. And I, I 
can't imagine Kevin McCarthy just running around trying to put out fires on both sides, trying to appease not only these members, but also their respective constituents. But it's just such a mess. And I, I like that someone like Mace came out of nowhere to expose herself as exactly, a fraud like yeah. this. Yeah, so we know, okay, here's one more you need to watch out for. Again. One more that needs to be primary. Exactly. You got the 10 who voted to impeach Trump, the 11, some of whom were also the same who voted to impeach Trump, but the 11 who voted to remove MTG. Obviously, Cheney and Kinsinger. Kinsinger's not running anymore, so he's we don't have to worry about him. David Joyce, who, again, a very weird stance, like the Tulsi Gabbard stance of, I'm not voting yes or no, I'm voting present. These people are exposing themselves, and that's good. We need to know who our enemies are, and we need to get rid of them. But notice her attack on MTG, religious bigot or racist. First of all, race, it didn't even come up in any of this. It's literally, yeah, nothing, like, nothing to do with race. Only a leftist would associate Islam with race. Only a leftist would compare a Muslim to being part of a separate race. Exactly. Like you can be any race and be a Muslim. Palestinians are white for the most part. Exactly. Rashida they, Tlaib. Yeah. Yeah, Rashida Tlaib would be technically be white by the traditional definition of it. So, yeah, race has not – only a leftist would make that jump. But then she says religious bigot because of the secular – the massive secularization uh, – not just secularization, but basically anti-religious indoctrination that has gone into every facet of the American bureaucracy, including the armed forces – if you're an out-and-out -out Christian, then you must be a religious bigot. Like if you believe that your Christianity is superior to every other religion, as every Christian should, then that makes you a religious bigot. Then, then this is just pure – this is something that you've got the Republican Party establishment agrees with people like Nancy Mace. They just don't want to say it out loud, but yet they want to try to get the votes of people who de technically in their definition are massive religious bigots and huge racists. It's just disgusting. Like people like Nancy Mace have no business in the Republican Party, and they should be completely primaried and run out on a rail of this party. Agreed, one hundred percent. So, on that happy note, let's talk about <laughs> some of the things that Gosar was actually talking about in his in his speech on the House floor. So, one of the things that the reason why they see people like Gosar as an ab, as an absolute threat, like a much they see like. One Gosar is worth any 20 of the other Republicans who don't or who aren't as bold as he is on the issues because he recognizes immigration for what it is, a massive – basically a human weapon used against the American people to change the demographics to make America into one huge shopping mall because that is the – that is the ultimate goal, to make America into a huge shopping mall where the CEO and the managers, they basically run things. They're at the top. They're the elites. And then everyone else, they're just shoppers. Like everyone, all the other plebs out there, they're just shoppers. They're happy going to the mall. They're happy eating junky fast food at the food court. And that's their life, day in and day out. And then they, you know, they work at the mall and they spend their measly paycheck at the mall. This is the America that they want to create. And in order to create that kind of an American, of course, they're compliant. You have to bring in a bunch of non-Americans. And so this is part of why the elites, the not just American elites, but uh, transnational elites want to try to encourage massive migration from the third world and the former third world and developing nations into first world countries. Because if you can get these people into first world countries, then you eliminate the designation of third world and first world because we'll all be equally third world. Their standard of living will be raised. The standard of living of the natives in those first world countries will be lowered. And everyone will kind of be at a happy medium, kind of somewhere in between the third world and the second world. So Border Hawk is kind of a news aggregate. So Border Hawk reporter Wid Lyman recently gave an interview to Tom Pappert, who we um, previously had on this show. Um, he was actually our first, the first person we interviewed on the show. He's the, um, he's the CEO, not CEO, what, what is Editor-in-chief. He's the editor-in-chief of National File. 
Now, Wood Lyman, what he did is they went to the border, they went to the Mexican side of the border and filmed the area that these migrants are living in and passing through. And as part of so they traveled to Acuna, Mexico, which is one of the major entry points for illegal immigrants. And they discovered just that they've they've got a documentary they're about to release and they enter they released a trailer for it and it just shows massive it just basically looks like one big landfill, like the the trash, the just extremely unsanitary conditions. But among the the uh, the items they found in these this massive landfill were pamphlets, and particularly packets of pamphlets. And these pamphlets were from the United Nations, they're from the government of Mexico, they're from NGOs, and they were instructing migrants how to make their way to the United States, how to enter the United States, where to enter the United States, and most importantly, how to file for refugee status. Because this is one thing that a lot of conservatives and a lot of Americans in general don't quite recognize is these migrants that are coming up from Central America, they are not illegal immigrants. They are legal immigrants. They are coming legally, taking advantage of our refugee laws. So they're technically not here illegally. When they come across the border and they say, I'm fleeing persecution, I'm a refugee, we have to legally accept them into our country and then investigate their particular case to find out if they're a refugee. If they are a refugee, a legitimate refugee, and a judge decides on that, they are allowed to stay. If not, they have to leave. Now, these migrants, because they've been coached by the Obviously, the United Nations, we didn't really know. We kind of suspected that the UN agencies ran on this. But because they've been coached by NGOs and lawyers, they purposely encourage these people to come through and they coach these people to come through on their legal rights once they get here, how to, how to claim asylum, how to deal with border guards and all that stuff. And one of the things that Lyman pointed out in this interview is we talk about, you know, we, we're, obviously we support the wall, but he was pointing out how the wall doesn't really stop this problem. They... When they realized that Trump was going to build a wall, these NGOs and these these open border activists, they figured, okay, well, we'll just there's there's ways around that, and we kind of saw a little bit of this under the Obama administration. You probably remember the 2014 surge of children from Central America under Obama. A lot of those children actually settled right around right around this area, around the suburbs of Washington D.C., and they brought MS-13 with them. But what they realized is well, all we got to do is just change our tactics and use the refugee loophole. So the fence is on the American side of the border. When a Salvadoran crosses that border, he walks up to the fence. He is on U.S. soil at that point. Our border agents are legally obligated to apprehend him. Yep, that's all they need. So he stands there on U.S. soil on that on the opposite side of the fence, and he just waits to be apprehended. So he's apprehended, he's taken, he's processed, and he's released into the interior of the United States, and he's given a court date for whatever, you know, like 18 months in the future. Meanwhile, he's just home free in America, and of course, he's not going to show up to his court date, and then he's legally allowed to enter the United States. And if he's apprehended because he didn't show up for his court date, well, he's got you know free he's got free legal representation from all these NGOs that are providing their lawyers free of charge to these immigrants to represent them in court. And of course, the you know, the cost of litigating hundreds of thousands of cases of of no shows to court is just not worth it to the government. So the government just leaves them alone, and they're able to enter legally. You know, technically he's illegal at that point, but at that point, does it matter anymore? I mean, nobody cares. Nobody knows where he's at. Nobody, it, it doesn't matter. So this is what they've been doing to get through. So it, it's, this is basically, this is a complete attack on our sovereignty. Like you've got American citizens and international transnationalist NGOs that are coaching 
people from Central America, not just Central America, from all over the place. Like there was material Lyman found that was directed toward Haitians, toward, uh, you know, people from not even from the Western Hemisphere. Like we know this problem exists. So how do you fix a problem like this? This wasn't just a problem under Biden. This was also a problem under Trump. Now, Trump was able to put a plug in it by implementing the Remain in Mexico policy. But yep. all that did is cause all of these hundreds of thousands of people to just sit in Mexico and wait because they were told by the NGOs, by the activists, if you just wait out the Trump administration, we'll get a Democrat in in 2020 and then you'll be home free. Because the idea was that by keeping them in Mexico, a lot of them would just give up and say, screw this, let's just go back home. Because again, none of them are really fleeing actual violence, like a burning country like Venezuela or anything. They, they're they coming here because they want a job and they want free handouts. You know, yeah, that, yeah, very that, few of these people are Venezuelans, hardly so, any of them. So, with a situation like this, the question remains, how do you stop it? What do you do to reverse this? So if you get another Republican administration, implement and remain in Mexico won't solve the problem because these people will simply stay in Mexico until they're, un, until a Democratic administration comes back in, and then you got the whole process is repeated over Starting again. Starting all over again. The only way to fix this problem is you have to – rather than target the migrants, you need to target the NGOs. You need to target the lawyers who are helping these people. You need to pass – if you need to pass legislation to criminalize helping these people yep. come here, you need to pass that legislation and implement tough prison sentences on these lawyers who are helping these people, implement tough prison sentences on all these NGOs and massive fines that will put them out of business – uh, for anybody who is helping these people because they're they are they're, they're literally attacking our country they're assisting foreign nationals they're literally they're using american resources and in some cases american taxpayer dollars to fund foreigners invading our country you well, can easily call that it's can, nothing less than an invasion yeah it is an absolute invasion exactly yeah it is it really is treason it's treason against the american people and because and again this goes back this is an ideological issue they don't see themselves as americans they see themselves as global citizens yep when you have when you have elites rich elites who see themselves as global citizens their loyalty is to humanity first country second they would do away with all borders if they could they're going to use those resources to create what they believe will be a better world. And that better world comes through funding millions and millions of people to flood the United States, to dilute the native population. So you eventually get the situation that Jorge Ramos wants, where the U.S.-Mexican border is no different than a state line. And people yeah. just come and go as they please. There's no difference. Everyone on both sides of the border is the same, has, shares the same Hispanic identity. You know, as, It's basically just you know one country. As the protesters chant, no borders, no wall, no USA at all. Yeah, well, this is and this is what these funders and these lawyers, these NGO uh, leaders, these CEOs, this is what they genuinely believe in, and this is mm -hmm. this is a crusade for them. The only way you're going to fix that is you for, you have to educate the right wing population in America of where the problem is. They they assume that all these people are just a bunch of illegals hopping the border the same as they did under Bush, right? But they're not. This this is fundamentally they're being different. driven there. They're at the end of the day. How are they coming to the border with clean clothes and everything? How are they getting these Biden campaign T-shirts <laughs> sent to them so that they can wear for a big photo op? And another thing that Lyman pointed out was whenever they took pictures – this, of course, he said it's going to be in the documentary. But they took pictures in this border town, Acuna, Mexico, and all of these migrants are wearing masks. Yep. None of the locals in Mexico are wearing masks, and he pointed out that – this they were obviously coached to wear masks mm -hmm. because it would look better to Americans if they saw these migrants coming in wearing masks. Just because one of the concerns is that these people are bringing COVID into the United States, which they're they going to spread COVID. And if you see them all wearing masks, it's like, oh, okay. Then that immediately disarms liberals. They're like, oh, okay. So we don't have to worry about them infecting our population. They're wearing masks. They're health conscious, and I'm sure they'll be willing to get the jab once they come across the border. 
So, yeah, these people – it's not – this isn't spontaneous. It's not like people all – because the thing is they had poverty in Central America. They, those countries have always been poor. At no point have any of those countries ever been successful, prosperous nations. So why all of a sudden in the late 20-teens are these people deciding we've had enough, we're leaving, we're going to the United States? And one of the things that people like AOC like to point out is, well, the United States prompted they, – they caused this through our meddling in their country. Well, we, we did overthrow the government of Guatemala, but that was back in the 50s. So what happened between well, – I think it was 1952 and 2017 when these people finally de- decided to start coming to the United States. Like, Why didn't they try to flood the U.S. border between 1952 and 2017 for 55 years? They all of a sudden decided three generations later that because you overthrew our government three generations ago, we have to come to America because you didn't leave us any other option. No, no, that's, that's, not, that's not the reason. They're obviously – this is obviously a very coached, well-funded effort by American elites, by transnational elites to try to get these people to flood the United States because they were poor before the caravans. The caravans didn't weren't prompted by anything we did. They weren't prompted by any change in their countries. It's just because that's when the international elites decide, okay, it's time to flood the border. This is how we're going to undermine America. So for the main topic, from one fake race hoax to another. So another thing that we missed as of recently is that the D-list TV actor, Jussie Smollett, or as Dave Chappelle calls him, Juicy Smouillet, was found guilty by a grand jury of five out of six counts related to his fate hate hoax. Is Back in January of 2019, he claimed that in on the streets of Chicago, his hometown, he was assaulted by two white guys wearing MAGA hats who put a noose around his neck, doused gasoline on him, or maybe it was bleach. We, we don't know what that was supposed to be. And they shouted, this is MAGA country, as they beat him for being a black uh, gay actor, by the way. He's black and gay. And then they disappeared in the night. Double dose of oppression. (laughs) And all these celebrities and politicians and Kamala and and Oprah and everybody else, they all came out of the woodwork to support him and say, this is terrible. This is obviously, you know, brought about. This is motivated by Trump. This is disgusting. It's racism and homophobia. It's two for the price of one. And no one questioned his story. But eventually the inconsistencies quickly emerged. Namely, why on earth would anyone walk around the streets of Chicago with a MAGA hat unless they have a death wish? <laughs> and ultimately, it turns out not only was he lying, he staged it himself. He hired two Nigerian brothers, two black guys, to attack him, quote unquote, attack him and bring the noose and everything. And they were actually extras who worked on the, the set of the TV show he stars in, which is Empire. Uh, it's, it's done now. It's final season aired a while ago. He was actually written out of the sixth and final season of the show when it became apparent that he was faking this. So after all this, after he was literally convicted in a court of law and found guilty, you'd think that the racism peddlers would just give it a rest and realize they really need to work on their hoax manufacturing skills and at least wait until the news cycle changes but no, they just couldn't help themselves. Yeah, this, and this is the thing that what happens with the riot. I remember when I was working at a firm in D.C. after the Charlottesville stuff happened, they were afraid to attack leftist corporations, leftist billionaires because they were they wanted everything to quote unquote blow over. Right. And this is what they like the right does. Anytime the right takes a black guy, they just want to you know lay low, wait for six months, and after six months, after the new cycle changes, okay, now we'll slowly you know move back into attacking the left. But the you know people on the left, they don't. They don't take a hint. Like they don't know how to take a hint. So shortly after the Juicy Smollett or (laughs) Juicy Smollett hoax was uh, finally settled in a court of law, this black New Jersey pediatrician, he posted a tweet of of himself in a three-piece suit with a lanyard that says doctor on it. And he said, quote, walking down the hallway when stopped by someone, quote, excuse me, you're housekeeping, right? 
I replied, quote, no, but I can try to help if you need something. The person looks down at my badge. Oh, you're a doctor. Sorry. You looked like custodial staff. And of course, of course, he's getting pilloried on Twitter for this. Like, there's no it's way this happened. Fake. What custodian wears a three-piece suit? No custodian wears a three-piece suit. No custodian walks around with a lanyard that says doctor on it. And this is like, remember the guy who wrote the article, you uh, you damn Karens are destroying America after the Virginia election yep. and the Daily Beast? Yep. Wajahat Ali. But yeah, he uh, – shortly after that happened, he gave this long Twitter thread about how he was a speaker at this uh, – somewhere, this convention center. And he said that this person – on two occasions, people walked up to him and asked him if he could park their car or go get their car. They thought he was the – he was the staff that was the, in the charge valet. of – The valet. They yeah. thought he was the valet. And, of course, he took massive offense to this and, and uh, talked about how he told them that they can go get their own. But when you think of Wajahat Ali's thing – yeah, that's probably real. Like people probably just he was probably standing by the door. And of course, the valets are always dressed nice. It's not like they're dressed shabby or anything. You really can't tell the difference between them and a speaker at a convention. They're all dressed in suits. So people probably figured he's by the door. He's got, you know, he OK, he's probably the guy who parked my car. Maybe he does look like the guy who parked their car. I mean, the guy who parked their car probably is Pakistani or Middle Eastern, and they just assumed it's the same guy. It, it doesn't – like the fact that he would take offense to this – and another thing this does is the fact that they take offense to this is it shows their classism. It shows yeah. how they view janitors. It shows how they view valets because like what is – what are you suggesting that the uh, – how did he refer to it? The housekeeping like nobody's nobody's going to talk like nobody's no going to ask if you're the housekeeping janitor. anymore. You you Only rich people say well, that. Well, even that. How many housekeepers work in a hospital? You don't. Well, yeah, you yeah, don't yeah, housekeep yeah. in a they hospital. They work in like mansions. Yeah, exactly. So the the fact that what is he suggesting here that doctors are somehow better than housekeepers? I mean, what is Wajahat Ali suggesting here mm. that motivational convention uh, the motivational speakers are somehow better than valets? So is there is there a class rank that these people believe in? Well, apparently reminds, so. It reminds me of that time. Remember when on the View, like they were talking about how terrible Trump's immigration policy was and one of the hosts unironically said you know if we get rid of all the immigrants who will clean our toilets and all yeah. the other hosts the other hosts immediately had to correct her like she genuinely she didn't say it as a joke she said that unironically and they had to correct her it was but that's just it yeah they are so class-based and this is something that like bill maher said you know back to the uh the, the one met gala you know the one where aoc wore that ridiculous dress he pointed out it's like all the celebrities are wearing are not wearing masks and all the uh the 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 staffers, the help, the uh, the chauffeurs and the the caterers, they're all wearing masks. This is more of a class thing than anything else. And he was criticizing the left for that. So, yeah, they really very much do still have a discriminatory worldview based on personal wealth. Beyond this, if that wasn't enough, we've got uh, – remember Bubba Wallace? Bubba Wallace. Remember old, yeah. Bu old Bubba Wallace, our favorite NASCAR driver? So after – again, after Smollett's conviction, you would assume that people would be like, OK, well, we need to – this is obviously a black eye on the whole – racial narrative that the left has been pushing for the past 10 years. We obviously need to kind of pull back, but no, of course not. <laughs> so ESPN last night, they ran a show called Fistful of Steel, and the whole thing, I believe it was a, I think it was a, an hour and a half special on Bubba Wallace. How The dare. whole thing is on Bubba Wallace, and they treat the noose hoax as if it's real, as if it actually happened, as if it was an actual noose. And uh, so how since, dare they use that title for one? Sergio Leone is rolling in his grave. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so I looked into this and we, we never we didn't really talk about Bubba Wallace because, of course, that happened. The whole news hoax happened last year. We started the show in January. But I went ahead and dug a little bit um, into his background just to find out, OK, so who is this guy? 
Like, like, why did he come out of nowhere? He's not a very good NASCAR driver. He's, no. he's won one race since then. At the time, he had never won a race in his life. He's like Kaepernick. Kaepernick was never like a top-tier quarterback or just football player in general. He was always just kind of mediocre. But he realized, and I think Bubba Wallace did the same thing, he realized that if I quickly make myself into a social justice warrior you know, for Black Lives Matter or whatever, then they can't fire me. And if they fire me, I can say, oh, they didn't fire me because I'm a terrible player. They fired me because of my outspokenness. Mm -hmm. And I think Bubba Wallace is very much the same so with this this espn special they did fistful of steel this is almost as if i uh, remember the 2000 movie that denzel washington played in i remember, remember the, titans. the titans yeah so this is like making remember so remember the titans was based on a true story that happened in 1971 or that everyone believes happened just like the movie portrays in 1971 i will come back to that so this would be like making remember the titans in 1972 a year after the alleged true story actually happened this would be like making a movie about january 6th from npr's perspective of january 6th which, in january 2022 which is exactly i mean even more dramatically that is what happened with i think it was abc news but i could be wrong it was one of the major news networks literally made a documentary on january 6th like the plot to overthrow america the following day January 7th, not even 24 hours later, Ashley Babbitt's body was not even cold yet, and they made a documentary on it as if we already knew everything that happened on January 6th. And of course, you can imagine what perspective they took. Well, this speaks to the establishment, to the, the media industrial complex, the entertainment industrial complex's mindset, speaks to their hubris. And it also shows a weakness that they have and an opportunity that the right has to dethrone these people. At no point in our country's history have the elite in this country ever represented one side of the political spectrum as thoroughly as they do today. At no point in America's history did you have a situation where like 96% of history professors in American universities lean to one side of the political spectrum. And so these history professors obviously set a narrative, Hollywood follows. You have these professors who say, okay, this is what happened during the civil rights era. You have a Hollywood director who wants to make a bunch of money. They get historians to come consult on the production of the movie, and they make the movie based on you know similar to what the professors claim happened. There is no pushback because there is no similar institution on the right to counter academia. There is no – I mean right-wing media is outnumbered. They're outnumbered and outgunned 10 to 1. Fit. So for, let's take for the civil rights era – they had to wait three decades before they could start producing movies about the civil rights. You didn't see any movies made about the civil rights era until the 1980s. You know, two decades, 20 years after it happened. A lot of the people who were around in the 60s, they were already dead. So they weren't around to tell their side of the story. And uh, most of the civil rights movies didn't come out to the 90s, early 2000s. Many of them not to the 20 teens when most of the people alive in the 60s were definitely dead and in the ground and couldn't give their side of the story. With this, with the Black Lives Matter riots, with the January 6th riot, they're so hubristic. They're so arrogant at this point. They don't think that – you know. they're looking around. They're saying, well, look, we're the only ones in the room. Why wait? Like why should we wait for our kids to be the heroes and make these movies and make these documentaries? Let's go ahead and make them ourselves. Let's go ahead and cement the historical narrative now. We don't need to wait three decades like our parents and grandparents did. We can go ahead and do it now. And this is why you're seeing – like this ESPN special on Bubba Wallace. So just to dive into a little bit of Bubba Wallace's story. So his dad is white. His mother is black. He, before he jumped onto the national stage uh, shortly after the George Floyd death, 
or I should say suicide. Uh, yeah. He was uh, he'd been in NASCAR for a few years. Uh, he really got big in 2018 because he gave an interview um, to um, what was it? one of the major. I don't remember which. It wasn't ESPN. It was one of the major sports um, sports broadcasters. But he was he was kind of hinting that you know it's kind of uh, unique to be the only black NASCAR driver. So like he wasn't. He wasn't a racial. So he's actually like the only black NASCAR driver, or was he exaggerating? Uh, the only, he's only only one that's known. I don't know. There may be some <laughs> others that are, haven't really made it. To, he's the only one in the major races. So they, the only, he's actually the only one, the only black NASCAR driver in the major races. I don't, I don't remember. I don't. I've never really followed NASCAR that closely. But uh, since the 1970s, early 70s, I believe it was. It was all white from the early 70s until Bubba Wallace came along. So he was. He wasn't necessarily pushy about it, but he was very race conscious before 2020. And um, so one of the ways that he became race conscious was through his mother. Whenever he was – he always liked racing, go-kart racing whenever he was a kid, and he would go attend NASCAR events. And his mother, after the event, she would point out to the black people picking up trash after the races. She'd say, you see those black people up there? She said, notice, notice what they're doing. She said, they don't care anything about this racing. They're, 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 they're just the help. They're just here to pick up trash. They're here to clean up after all these white people. You so mean- she would instill in him – a sense of inferiority for blacks. Like, look at these blacks. They're making them like all these white people come and they watch racing. And then after they leave, they make all the black people pick up their trash after it's over with. So you can imagine on a young mind how this instills his kind of, you know, how this is, you know, starting to develop his thinking about race. His parents even sat him down at one point and had a conversation about race, talking about how, you know, black people are discriminated against. You're probably going to be discriminated against because you're half black. And when they were they got through talking, he said, "Are you done?" They said, "Yeah." Okay, can I go play video games? They're like, "Okay." And so he went upstairs to play video games. So obviously, you know, a normal kid, he doesn't care. He just wants to have fun. Mm-hmm. But as time goes on, his mom's like pointing out, "Now look, they're black like you. They're picking up trash. They're the help. They're the servants. Like this type of thing." So this is how he's thinking growing up. In uh, April of 2020, before the Arbor, uh, the uh, the uh, Ahmed Arbery, Arbery. Ahmed Arbery case, the the, uh, the George Floyd case. There was a NASCAR driver called Kyle, named Kyle Larson who dropped the N-word in, um, in a virtual racing event. And, uh, of course, I'm sure it was like a soft A, like you heard it in a rap song, like a, you know, kind of like a lot, of, a lot of whites do, white yeah. millennials do. And uh, they kind of blew up. He got uh, kicked out. He lost a sponsorship, and he called Bubba Wallace and left. Um, and this, is, this shows this is kind of like a, a sociological window into how white people view race and racial aggressions, verbal racial aggressions or microaggressions. He calls Wallace and leaves a tear-filled voicemail apologizing. He calls him again. Wallace is why Wallace, Wallace was, sees, he, was he addressing Wallace? Yeah, because yeah, Wallace is the only black driver. Oh, okay. So, so like Wallace wasn't part of this original incident, but he's like, oh, I gotta call the one black guy. Exactly. In NASCAR. So <laughs> Wallace sees him calling. Wallace saw his number. He saw his name on his phone calling. He purposely let it go to voicemail. He purposely did not pick up. And so after he leaves these two tear-soaked voicemails, Wallace calls a black guy who works for this guy's team. And the black guy, of course, doesn't like the fact that he used the N-word. And he finally manages – Kyle finally gets up with him, and he basically throws his apology in his face. It's like, well, hey, man, that was in your vocabulary. Like, I was, In fact, his exact words, that was in your vocabulary, dog. Oh. That, was, that was in your vocabulary. We know, you, we know that's how you think. Oh. And so – it goes to Kyle Larson goes through this months long penance 
where he continually apologizes over and over again. Finally, Bubba Wallace, being just the cruel bastard that he is, <laughs> he finally lets him into his life. He talks to him. He basically tries to brainwash him into pro-BLM talking points. Kyle Larson does what he needs to do. Like, he keeps his head down like a good little puppy. He does his penance. And then he, he's let back into the NASCAR. He's restored to his position as a racer in October. And this kind of gives a window into how white people view this stuff. They'll say they'll do something to offend black people and the establishment. And then they'll go on this crying. They'll, they'll, they'll bring out these fake tears and just pretend like they're so sorry. They'll apologize, get on their knees and grovel and make a fool of themselves. And then they're reinstated. It's like, okay, I got my money back. This is what I – because that's what society has taught them that they have to do to restore – like they don't care about their dignity. They just care about their money. They care about making money. That's all they care about. It's just about the money. So they'll do what they have to do. This is what they did in the Soviet Union. When you said – if you dared say something that was critical of Stalin, critical of any of the uh, communist bloc leaders – Fidel would, Castro. Yeah, Fidel Castro. They wouldn't execute you yet. Mm. But if you got on your knees and you cried and you prostrated yourself and you were contrite – then they would allow you to continue to humiliate yourself and continue to humiliate yourself, continue to humiliate yourself. And then after a while, they would slowly let you back in and have your job, but at the at the sake of your dignity. And this is basically, again, like we that, said- That's the end of 1984. Yes, BLM is basically taken a, uh, taken a page out of Mao Zedong's playbook, and they've changed it around instead of class. Now it's race. And this, so anyway, this, was, this happened to Kyle Larson. The Akmald Arbery case is what really radicalized Bubba Wallace. So he was reading about this, and of course he believes the narrative that these uh, two white Bubbas were, ran down this black man because he wasn't supposed to be in their lily white neighborhood and murdered him. This is the narrative that he believed. He tried to bring it up with other race car drivers in a group chat, and he basically said, hey, can we do something about this? And their responses was, hey, when do you think our families will be able to make it back to the NASCAR games? Because this is in the height of COVID. <laughs> They're asking, you know, hey, do you think you've got any of these kind of tires I can use for my car? They're basically completely ignoring him. You mean they, they care more about what's going on in their personal lives? They care more about their jobs and they care more about their families than about some obscure case in yeah, another state? I, well, Call apparently me so. Well, because <laughs> they're all racist. you got to remember, they're all racist NASCAR oh, yeah. drivers. So this this is, this is Bubba Wallace is basically like, okay, I forget about it. Like, this is the way you guys are going to be. Forget about it. He's just basically basically huffed out of that group chat. Well, NASCAR's president, Steve Phelps, who has been on the job for two years and been trying to reorient NASCAR to make it more appealing to the, to the mass, bring in minorities, that type of thing. Steve Phelps was 100% supportive of, of Bubba Wallace's uh, racial justice initiative, like to try to get NASCAR to speak out on race. So Phelps told Wallace the, that the sanctioning body's resources were completely at his disposal. Wallace responded by saying a simple promotional campaign would not be enough. They needed to go big. So Wallace, in fact, joked. He said, quote, for a split second, I was kind of running NASCAR at that moment. God help us. Yeah, so this is why Bubba Wallace got big. Steve Phelps basically gave it to him and said, OK, look, BLM is on the rise. We're going to let you run this. Run Even though you're, you're an obscure driver who's never won a race, we're going to let you run this thing. On June 3rd, Wallace appeared on Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s podcast and attacked drivers who simply chose to maintain their white silence. Now, he didn't use those words, white silence, right. but that's basically what was implied. That's the catchphrase that he loved to use is white silence is violence or so, something like yeah, that. Yeah, so all those all those drivers that uh, just basically wanted to get their families back in the stands, they basically just wanted to get back to NASCAR, get over this COVID stuff. He was, he was attacking them for not becoming racial justice activists. And it's funny, out of 40 drivers, he had he named like four who got on board with it like the rest of them were just like get out, get out of here with that stuff we just want to we just want to drive we, we just want to race. race man we just want to keep making our left turns so he also did an instagram live and this june 3rd because right after the all the riots were taking place he did an instagram live with another driver where he went over traffic stops in 2011 
two times that he was stopped by a police officer in 2011. As Nine to years show, prior. Right, right. It's to kind of show, look, I've faced racial injustice as well. This was kind of his Tim Scott moment. He was basically given his Tim Scott version of events. Like, look, I've as a black man in America, I've, I've faced racial injustice too. I had white cops in the South pull me over and they pulled out the the dogs, the drug sniffing dogs. And they thought that because, you know, I was driving this fancy car that I had stolen it. But you got to remember 2011, like Bubba Wallace, he's, uh, see, he was 24 in 2018. So 20, 26 and 2020, nine years prior, he'd have been 17 years old in 2011 driving this, driving this fancy car. Yeah. I'm, if I'm a cop and I see this 17 year old driving through a shady area with a fancy car, yeah, I'm probably going to wonder, is he a drug dealer? So that's not even taken. His age isn't even taken into account here. It's just because he's a he's a he's a half black man in America, and all these cops are pulling him over and wanting to. Which, by the way, just for full disclosure, when I was in college, I had a bunch of cops around me and have me get out of the truck and pat me down and search my truck for drugs, thinking I was a drug dealer. I had that actually happen on two occasions, and I'm white. Wait, so that happened. You're white. Are you sure you weren't wearing blackface or something? I must have been day. wearing blackface <laughs> at the time because that's the only way that all these cops would accuse me or think that I'm a drug dealer. Yeah, because you know? apparently that, that never happens to white people. No, uh, no, that, never, never happens. What I told. Oh my god. But it wasn't just this. There was also this issue. So his cousin was shot and killed by a police officer in Knoxville, Tennessee, back in 2003 when he was when Bubba Wallace was nine years old. His cousin was an 18 who was killed by police and according to the way according to his version of events that he kept telling over and over again all through june and july of last year his cousin reached for his phone and the cop pulled out his gun and killed him on the spot thinking that he was reaching for a gun well his cousin's mother actually tried to sue the city of knoxville it turns out his cousin was reaching for a gun and the trial judge threw the case out she appealed it to the circuit court judge the circuit court judge threw it out because all of the evidence showed that he did reach for a gun when the cop told him to put his hands up, he raised both hands and he had a gun in his right hand. The cop shot him. So the case was thrown out. But according to Bubba Wallace's telling, he was just reaching for his cell phone. He wasn't reaching for his gun, which doesn't even make sense. You got the cops telling you to put your because the cop saw he had a gun on the seat next to him. He had his hand on the gun. The cop told him to raise his hands. It doesn't make any sense. A cop tells you to raise your hands. You raise your hands and you're going to reach in your pocket for a cell phone to call your mom. Yeah, and say, hey, the cop has got the drop on me. He's telling me to write. No, that doesn't. So yeah, the whole, none of that adds up. The whole, but you know, how many people actually go back and look at the at the? And we're going to link in the description. We're going to link the actual case yep. uh, in uh, from two thousand three. But how many people are actually going to go back and read the case and realize that Bubba Wallace is just full of crap? Yeah, on this th story? they'll just assume he's telling the truth because why not? Because that's the narrative. Like uh, this is what happens when you're black in America. You just get shot by cops. So uh, after this happened, then he called for the banning of the Confederate flag at NASCAR events, yep. which. The Confederate flag has just been a staple of NASCAR. Like it's just something they do to show their Southern pride. It doesn't have any political connotations whatsoever. Exactly. So it's the same uh, with the General Lee and Dukes of Hazard. Exactly. It's no different from Dukes of Hazard situation. So Phelps, of course, uh, being the Vermont liberal that he is, he immediately said, "Oh, absolutely." So he immediately bans the Confederate flag. Rip. So the next race, uh, the next race is in Talladega, and there's just a massive line of trucks lined up with Confederate flags on nice. them surrounding the stadium. <laughs> I mean, it was awesome, and then. I get this on during the race, this guy flies his private plane over the stadium, over no the Talladega way. arena with a huge Confederate banner <laughs> behind the plane with the words underneath it, defund NASCAR. 
Oh, so, I remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's too so good. This was this was very very bad PR for Bubba Wallace and NASCAR because they know that most NASCAR fans, like ninety percent of them, want the Confederate flag to stay there. And you got this pride. Like it, it's very obvious the people who support the Confederate flag aren't just a bunch of broke druggy hillbillies because obviously this guy can afford a private plane flying the rebel flag above the Talladega Speedway. So that kind of that was very very bad publicity. So what do they need? They need a noose. Does anybody have a noose? Can we get a noose? We need the Klan. Like, where is the KKK when you need them? I mean, we really need the KKK to show up and have a rally at Talladega so we can have we can put this on camera. So Phelps comes to Wallace and lets and informs him that they found a noose in his garage. And the way Phelps did this, like, you just got to appreciate the drama. Phelps calls him and says, hey, I need to talk to you. Says, like, okay, he's about to go out to have dinner with his buddies. Phelps comes out and he sits down on the steps of his trailer. And he breaks down in tears. And he starts crying. This middle-aged business, middle-aged CEO of NASCAR just starts crying, looks up, tear-stained eyes. They found a noose in your garage. And Wallace was like, oh, oh, that's messed up. But he couldn't figure out why is Phelps crying. Well, Phelps had to inform, had to inform this black man of what the noose means, of the significance. Because this is what white liberals always have to do. They have to make sure that they inform young, young blacks of the history of racism in America because young blacks don't know what racism is and they've got to make sure they inform them that if somebody puts a noose in your garage, they're obviously hearkening back to the days when they hanged black people in the town square. Right. So he Phelps, with the, through his tear-stained eyes, he describes the situation of Wallace, of course, taken aback. Wallace canceled, canceled dinner and then Wallace had his own sob session by himself while he ate cold pizza on his couch, just sitting there crying, man. What kind of country do we live in? People leaving nooses in your garage. This is just terrible. And, of course, the next race, they all – all the 39, the other 39 racers pushed his car, which is a tradition. Normally, they have the team push the race car driver's car to the starting line. That's what they do. But now all the racers to show their solidarity with Bubba Wallace and show that we don't stand with racism. We don't stand with people who want to hang black people. They all pushed his car to the starting line. Well, of course, it turns out after the FBI sent 17 field agents, or was it was it 25? I don't remember. Down to investigate this uh, this noose in this uh, one in the you know, in this garage, they needed all 17 agents to come down here and take a look at it. They decided they uh, figured 17 out. agents. I, I love that you have uh, over a dozen FBI agents with nothing better to do. Nothing better than to, to investigate. Do. No, no kidnappings. No, no Olympic doctors raping girls. Like no, none of that stuff. No, they'd much rather focus on. They couldn't solve that. What was that? Case? Remember the yeah, the young couple that was out and the boyfriend apparently. Oh yeah, the uh, Gabby Petito. They couldn't and solve Brian Laundry. Yeah, they let they let Brian Laundry just sit at his parents' house for two weeks and couldn't do anything about it. And then he goes off and they can't find the guy. But they send down they can afford to send down seventeen agents. To, well, this is probably why they can't find actual murderers because they're spending so much of their time trying to fight racial justice crusades. But anyway, I digress. So they they debunk it. They let NASCAR know that this actually isn't a hate crime. This is – and because NASCAR was saying there was a hate crime. This is how Steve Phillips – this is how Steve Phillips told – this is what he told Bubba Wallace when he first started sobbing. He said there's been a hate crime committed against you. And Wallace is thinking, well, is my mom murdered? Like what's going on? But this is how they described it. And they released it. They said there has been a hate crime committed against our, one of our drivers. 
Well, the FBI confirmed that it was not a hate crime. They confirmed mm-hmm. that it was just a garage pull, just for the door to pull the garage door down. Something that literally every garage door has. Well, not every garage door, and it did sort of look like a small noose. It was a very small. I mean, but if they, it was a noose, there's no way you were hanging anybody with that noose. It was so small. Correct. But they also found from footage that the noose looked just like that in that garage a year before, and that the people who prepared the garages they had no idea which driver was going to be in which garage. They don't have their own assigned garages or anything. Correct. It's just yeah. It's just they're randomly assigned garages. So whoever designed that that garage pool like that. They had no idea that Bubba Wallace was going to be in that particular garage. So even if a person wanted to put a noose or design – or because at first it was like someone hanged a noose. And then the narrative was, well, no, they changed the garage pool to look like a noose as a means of intimidation. Well, even if they had, they had no idea. They would just had to guess that that's where Bubba Wallace would have been. And there were less than 100 people who even had access to these garages. So even if uh, you know some racist uh, – you know some, some, some racist Bubba out there wanted to do this, he wouldn't have had access to it. So to try to save face and lessen the perception that NASCAR had jumped the gun on this hate hoax, they rolled out more details of the investigation. It said there were 1,684 garage stalls investigated at 29 different racetracks, and this was the only one with the garage pull fashioned as a noose. And it reminded everyone that the FBI specifically described it as a noose three times in its seven-sentence statement. So just because the FBI described it as a noose three times – and because it was the only one in all of its stalls that looked like this. It has to be a news, obviously. They, yeah, they came back. And if you remember, he gave an interview, Bubba Wallace gave an interview with Don Lemon. And Don Lemon, throughout the thing, you could tell by his facial expressions, he knew Bubba Wallace was just making this stuff up. And he was completely full of crap. That is the funniest thing is when, again, Dave Chappelle talked about this when uh, in his Netflix special, Sticks and Stones, he talked about Jesse Smollett. He's, he kind of implied, you know, black people are are the best at knowing when other black people are lying yep. and he said it's like that's why we in the black community kept quiet we're strangely <laughs> quiet because we all knew that was lying which is why you can show that which is more proof that kamala harris is not black <laughs> oh i just got that so oh my goodness so they, he goes on don lemon and don lemon is kind of like uh, so why, why don't you tell us what happened he goes over and now don lemon says now they figured out that it wasn't a hate crime that it wasn't actually a noose and bob wallace goes on no no but they said it was a noose it was definitely a noose so the perception we're supposed to get okay it wasn't a hate crime but it was a noose so where's the story somebody formed somebody Put this garage pull in the shape of a noose so you could pull the garage door down, but it wasn't a hate crime and it wasn't directed against you. So where's the story? Like, and the whole time, like Lemon, Don Lemon is like, uh huh. Uh, okay. <laughs> he knows it's garbage, like, but he, he doesn't want to disagree with him. Yeah, like, he knows it's garbage. He knows that this guy is completely full of crap. <laughs> But the whole purpose of this was so he could get a sponsorship. Of course, he now drives a car that's uh, that's, that's owned by um, it's the uh, Michael Jordan, and of course, like he's he's got massive sponsorships. Bubba like McDonald's. Wallace, and yeah, others. Bubba Wallace yeah. has made a ton of money off of this. Of course, he's mm-hmm. going to make a ton of money from this ESPN show. So he's profited, and this is why people continue to do this because it makes money. The stuff race sells in America because of the narrative that people have. So I knew this was a hoax when I first found out about it. When they first announced that Bubba Wallace had a noose found in his garage, I knew it was a hoax. I didn't have to. I didn't have to read the FBI report. I didn't have to hear any of the news after that. I immediately knew it was a hoax for two simple reasons. Number one, the guy who flew the Confederate flag above the Talladega Speedway, he really, really did some damage. 
to the narrative because the liberals don't want to see a guy who is rich enough to afford a private plane having a Confederate flag. They want to, especially in the era of, of cancellations, they want to fire anyone who has unapproved opinions. So the fact that somebody is rich enough to you know, have a pri- private plane and they think it's okay to fly the Confederate flag, that just defeats their narrative. The second reason is because I'm from Alabama and I know for a fact that nobody would put a noose in anybody's garage as a means of intimidation. Nobody does that. That's, if you want, yeah, that's this isn't you know the 1800s. This that does not happen anymore. Yeah, because if you're going to intimidate somebody, I don't know what would you do. People people are actually more likely in this day and age to chop off a human finger and leave that in a garage like to MS intimidate someone. Style, yeah, like yeah. MS-13 style. Yeah, MS-13 style than they would to leave a noose. People haven't been hanged as a means of execution. I think the last person hanged in America in like for an execution was in the 1920s. The electric chair replaced hanging. Mm-hmm. The last actual lynching that I'm aware of that involved hanging took place in the 1930s, 1937. And in the 1930s, there were like four. There were like four instances of people lynched. You've got to go back to the 1920s, almost 100 years ago, to find when lynching was actually common because hanging was still the means of execution at the time. Once they got rid of hanging people and they started electrocuting people to death mm-hmm. who were on death row, they just kind of left popular imagination. Like nobody thinks about that. It wouldn't even. And the thing is, the idea that it's a racial trope, it was never a racial trope. They hang, they lynched black people and they lynched white people who were accused of murder and rape yep they people who were on death row both black and white got hanged but it was never this idea that the noose is somehow it has racial undertones it simply doesn't it has racial the only people that has racial undertones for are people who are academics or who have been brainwashed by academics and hollywood and without hollywood without the leftists and academia nobody would associate a noose as a form of intimidation with race and nobody would even associate a noose as a form of intimidation simply because exactly. nobody hangs anybody anymore. You would, I mean, people shoot each other, people stab each other, yeah. but they don't hang each other in crime. So it's not – nobody – and this is another thing with the like Justice Mollett case. Like the fact that anybody believed that this would even happen in the 21st century, mm-hmm. this wouldn't have happened in the 1960s. No, no, it wouldn't. Can you imagine like – or similar example. Can you imagine if people try to claim that the guillotine is racist? Like, yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and the guillotine is certainly a more threatening symbol. Like, because we all, it's a little more recent and it's, it's a giant blade. It looks pretty intimidating, but like that nobody uses guillotines. Nobody does that as a symbol of intimidation anymore either. Well, it I does guess, happen. I guess those people who brought that makeshift uh, hanging platform and noose who are threatening Mike Pence, I guess they were, well, wait a minute. Mike Pence is white. Yeah, so that that's, that's a good point. Yeah, that's kind of a problem. And kind of like the Bubba Wallace news too. That you ever seen like actual pictures? Like there's the infamous picture of that fake guillotine with like uh you know the capital and the distance behind it. But then an actual like proper picture for scale with someone next to it. It's a really small thing. It's like is this what meant for like decapitating a squirrel? Like it's it's a really small. It's not actually big enough to actually put anyone in it. So just like the news in Bubba Wallace's garage. But I digress. But Wallace himself, he's just an absolute absolutely rotten person i, I mean mm-hmm. we don't we can he's look back very over, unhappy he's yeah. very unhappy he's very miserable and if you look back at his like i was trying to figure out okay where did he go wrong like because <laughs> like people the fact that he's black he's looking for reasons to be oppressed as a black man in nascar but you had a black like they mentioned you had a black man in nascar in the 60s and 70s and dale earnhardt's i think it was dale earnhardt senior actually was friends with him and helped him out like dale earnhardt senior was the, the highest up you can get in nascar so this guy, and it, obviously nobody ever left a noose at this guy's garage back in 
the 60s. Because the 60s. Would, yeah. We would all know about it. It would, it would be, you know, the last NASCAR driver had a noose left in his garage. And we haven't had a black man since. Like, that would be the story. But obviously, there wasn't an issue with any of that. So, but if if I was looking back at his story, so apparently Bubba Wallace, uh, Wallace's dad, he didn't attend a race in 2016, 2015, 2016, and Wallace got butthurt about it, that oh. his dad wasn't at his race, and he finished second place, and it kind of hurt his relationship with his dad ever since. So, That's literally from the Ricky Bobby movie. Like, yes. Same thing. <laughs> but, like, so, but you said his dad, he's, he's a mixed race. You said his dad yeah, is white, his, dad his, is mom, white. Is, so his mom is black. Yeah, his so. mom is black. So apparently he's got daddy issues, and that, mm. that has uh, majorly affected his view of everything. I mean, his dad has even been supportive of him since he became a race baiter, but even that, apparently, that's uh, that, that came out in the, do- in the show that ESPN showed last night. But so this is the kind of guy this is. So he's, uh, he's telling ESPN, uh, quote, you want to defend yourself, but you've got to look at who you represent, too. It's go- it's ongoing every day I click. If you tweet some, this is another of his problems. He spends too much time on Twitter because he was he was engaging with people right. who on who were attacking him on Twitter but long before all this race stuff popped off. He's one of those guys who like reads every single tweet and replies to all yes. of them. Yes. In fact, he that he told ESPN that he reads the replies. Oh, he said, goodness. so it's ongoing every day I click. If you tweet something about me, I'll click on it and um, just not even read the article, but I'll go in there and look at the replies. It's a great article, Newsboy, or here we go with Bubba again, shoving it down our throats. I just read the replies and I shouldn't, but it motivates me. And I think, damn, one day. One day. So he's plotting revenge in his mind against all of these Twitterati's out there. Like, one day, one day, I know it's going to happen. And when we do win and become a household name on the racetrack, you'll be quiet. And don't come to the party when the doors are open, though, because your ass ain't getting in. So this is the attitude. This is the attitude that this guy has. Like he's he's got a chip on his shoulder, and he's already won a race. But notice he didn't become a household name because of that race. Everyone knows uh, knows of him as Bubba Smollett, like the the NASCAR <laughs> race baiter. He even kind of looks physically very similar to a uh, Jesse Smollett. Like they they have a very similar like similar like short beards and like everything. They look very similar. But just in closing, I mentioned remember the Titans. I remember I mentioned how you know ESPN putting out this show and this this documentary about Wallace you know a year after all this stuff happened. Uh, this would be like putting up Remember the Titans, like releasing that in 1972, a year after all this stuff happened. So everyone knows Remember the Titans. Everyone remembers it. It was a huge blo- uh, blockbuster success. Like everyone, like it was it was a huge hit in 2000. Because this was kind of the feel-good era, we're coming out of the '90s, mm-hmm. we're starting the new millennium. Like all, like there's no racial turmoil in America anymore. All that's behind us. We're all moving forward as one race, as one human race, as one American people. So this was kind of a very feel-good movie to kind of make white people think that we've moved past our racism, and to make black people think we have overcome. So uh, this guy actually did some research on uh, Mike Goodpaster. He said, "I wrote an article a while back about the movie Rudy. If you remember the Ru- uh, the Rudy movie about, about the Notre Rudy. Dame player in the early '90s." He said, "Oh yeah." Which detailed the made-up facts and characters in the movies. Of course, everybody knows about that. Everyone knows the Rudy movie really twisted the, the actual story of what happened. It made a lot of Rudy's former teammates mad at him and the movie producers because they twisted the story so badly. Uh, this guy writes, After I wrote the Rudy article, Grueling Truth content editor podcaster Os Davis requested a write-up of Remember the Titans. He said that if I thought Rudy was bad, I would be surprised to discover that Remember the Titans was even worse. It took about five minutes of research to find what O's was talking about. And remember, the Titans turns out to be another movie filled with outright lies. He says, though, I know that all based on a true story movies embellish the facts to improve the script. I think it's wrong when people that never existed and storylines that never happened are added. So here are 19 different things about Remember the Titans that were just outright false. 19. That's, 19. that's a lot. 
So, was T.C. Williams High School integrated in 1971, as the movie leads us to believe? No. T.C. Williams High, which is just up the road in Alexandria, was integrated in 1965, six years before the movies, before the events in the movie were depicted. Now, remember, a large part of this movie was about the integration of the school in 1971 and how the team came together, breaking through racial strife. Simply not true. Number two, was there racial tension on the team? No. In the last 10 years, many players have come out and told different media outlets that the racial tension portrayed in Remember the Titans simply did not exist. Recall that the school had been integrated a full six years before the team even played a game. So none of the players on the team were even in high school when the school integrated. In a Washington Post article, Bill Yost's friend, Bill Yost was the white coach, the white assistant on the team. Played his, by Will Patton in the movie. Mm -hmm, his friend Patrick Welsh stated on the movie's position on the racial tensions at the school that, quote, my friend Bill Yost told me Disney had taken liberties with the fact, suggesting an overheated atmosphere of racial animosities and fears at the school and in the community that just hadn't existed. That's right. It's a Disney movie. I forgot that. Mm -hmm. Number three, were all the schools in the Titans, were all the schools that the Titans faced on the field white? No. All the schools in the conference had already been integrated. Remember, this is 1971. Integration, everyone in the country has already happened. Number four, did Coach Herman Boone toss a banana to rival Coach Tyrell at the end of a game? Coach Herman Boone is the main character played by Denzel Washington. And if you remember the scene, he was uh, being made fun of for being black, and he tosses a banana at one of the white coaches at the end of a game. No, this never happened. There was no Coach Tyrell to even toss a banana to, as he was also entirely made up. Number five, was Jerry Bertier's girlfriend, Emma, based on a real person? Jerry Bertier was the white captain on the team. No, she was not a real person. Similar to how the movie Rudy created Rudy's brother, Remember the Titans, was supplemented with made-up characters. Number six, did Herman Boone wake the team up at 3 a.m. and make them run to the Gettysburg Cemetery? No, the T.C. Williams team did train at Gettysburg College, but there appears to have been no such run to the Gettysburg Battlefield at any time of day. And whenever I saw the movie, I knew this scene was made up. Because in the scene, Coach Boone tells all the his players, white and black, that we're fighting over some of the same things that these men who fought that are they're lying here dead fought here over a hundred years ago. And no coach is going to tell his players that because first of all, all the white players in 1971 are going to believe that all the Confederates fighting there were fighting to defend Southern independence. They weren't fighting to defend slavery. But the narrative that academics who then consult with Hollywood tried to present is that the Civil War was all about ending slavery. So Boone is telling all these players that we're fighting over the same racial strife that these men fought over 100 years ago, which, of course, is completely unrelated. So I knew they had made that one up when I first saw it. Number seven, did Jerry Bertier and Julius Campbell, Julius Campbell was the black captain, become best friends in real life? And he says this one's partially true. They were friends in real life, but they weren't best friends like they make out in the movie. Number eight, was Ronnie Sunshine Bass a long-haired hippie from California? You probably remember this character, the, the long-haired hippie. Um, I don't remember. Was it this movie was a different one they made out? Was it, Did they in, um, suggest that he was a homosexual in this movie? I honestly don't remember. It, that could have been another movie. Yeah, it could have been. But, but anyway, I do remember him being uh, portrayed as like this long-haired hippie from California. So Bass did come from California, but to portray him as a hippie is a bit of an exaggeration, this guy writes. He says, I was never quite like that, Bass told the Greenville, told, uh, Greenville South Carolina News. Quote, but that's Hollywood. I'll say for the record, my hair was never that long. And now a lot <laughs> of his teammates actually had, including Barrett, Gary Bertier, had longer hair than he did. Number nine, did protesters stand outside of T.C. Williams on the first day of school? Of course not. 
The school had already been integrated six years earlier, and even when the desegregation came, the racial tension just never existed to the extent that the movie portrayed. Remember, this is Alexandria, Virginia. Like, a lot of these people were in the military, too. A lot of, the, a lot of vets live in this area. A lot of people are active service members who are serving with blacks in the military. Like, it's not – integration in Alexandria and Arlington was kind of a big deal because most people didn't want it to happen. But it wasn't like they were going to take time off of their workday to go stand on the sidewalk and yell racial epithets at all the black students coming to school. They, they had better things to do. It's like, OK, whatever. The courts ordered it. Uh, you know, let's get on with our lives. Number 10, did a referee's plot to ensure that the Titans would lose a game exist? No. All the teams that Williams High played were integrated, so there is no actual proof that this ever happened. Number 11, is the part about Coach Yost not making the Virginia High School Football Hall of Fame accurate? Yes, but the only reason it is true is that Virginia didn't have a high school Hall of Fame. Oh, my goodness. Number 12, which Coach Yost's daughter, Cheryl, a football fanatic, is portrayed to be in the film. No, according to Coach Yost, the closest thing that he ever found of her football fanaticism was that she attended the games. Number 13, did Coach Yost's daughter, Cheryl, go to Coach Boone's house to play with his daughter? No, she never went to Coach Boone's house. Number 14, in real life... Was Cheryl Yost an only child who lived with her father? No, in actuality, Cheryl Yost lived with her mother and three sisters. Number 15, did the racial incident at the restaurant happen? No, Petey and Ronnie were never refused service at a restaurant. Another completely made-up incident. And remember, this is 1971. Civil Rights Act passed in 64. Even if there was a restaurant in Alexandria, Virginia, that wanted to refuse service to black people, they couldn't do it because they would get sued. Exactly. Number 16, did the T.C. Williams Titans ever dance on the field during warm-ups like in the movie? No. Number 17, were the Titans often the underdogs, as the film implies? No, not even close. The Titans were almost always heavy favorites and outscored opponents by a whopping 338 to 38. That included nine shutouts and a 27 to 0 state championship game win. So the idea that they were underdogs and the fact that they had to fight and scrap their way to victory, that wasn't even close. They were, you know, when you outscore your opponents 338 points to 38, it's not really worth making a movie about you. Because you're exactly. not the underdogs, and you're just killing all your opponents. Like, this isn't the miracle on ice. No, this is not, not a even true close. underdog story. Number 18. Was Jerry Bertier pa paralyzed in a car accident before the championship game? Partially true. Bertier was paralyzed in a car accident, but the accident happened after the season, and he played in the state title game. Number 19. How many characters in Remember the Titans are fictional? In addition to the made-up characters already mentioned, the players Alan Bosley and Ray Buds are pure fiction. In training camp and again during the season, Buds intentionally misses blocks because he wants the, the black teammates to be taken down. Bertier chews him out, in the, uh, out for this and later has Ray kicked off the team, thus with Buds utterly non-existent in reality. Remember the Titans has an entirely fictional incident as one of its key moments. And of course, the conclusion that he draws from all these 19 fictional incidents in the movie is that Hollywood, Disney in particular, simply wanted to sell racism. Racism sells in a country that has been programmed to believe that white people years ago hated black people. Like all the caricatures that you see in these movies. And growing up, this is one thing that really struck me, is that all these caricatures of all these you know, racist, backy-chewing white Southerners in the 60s who just hated blacks and you know, treated them like dirt, these people don't exist. Like, as someone who grew up in Alabama, I've never met anybody who even comes close to to matching any of these fictional characters that are presented as actual people who lived in these movies. Now, obviously, in the 50s and 60s, there were white people who held very anachronistic views about race and about blacks. Many of them were influenced by the social Darwinism that flooded the schools during the late 1800s and the early 1900s. But nothing compared to what Hollywood portrays. And in the case of Remember the Titans, one of the well, – arguably one of the most successful movies ever made, 
it's complete fiction. Like, sure, there was a team that won the state championship in 1971, but they took this team that existed and they just completely mangled the story and tried to cram in basically six years of American history from 1965 to 1971 into one team, one town, and one year. And it just – it's a complete mess. And it gives people a very – fake sense of race relations in the 60s and 70s and they take that fake sense of race relations then it's then very easily easy to manipulate them to make them think that in the year 2020 someone would put a noose in a black nascar driver's garage as a means of intimidation whereas anyone who actually is out there among real people knows that the whole thing was made up they didn't need the fbi to tell them but yeah, so this is what the, the elites in this country have so much hubris, so much arrogance. They think they can define history and rewrite history that we all lived through a year ago today and get away with it. Exactly. And of course, we all know Hollywood takes creative liberties, is the phrase they use, to make composite characters or, you know, make stories a little more exciting, like, you know, Narcos on Netflix and stuff like that. Like, that's, they do that. Of course, they do that to make it more exciting. Argo is another great example of a movie that takes quite a few liberties to produce a much more entertaining movie than just a direct telling of the story would be. And I love that movie. That was a great movie. But there's creative liberties for the sake of entertainment and then creative liberties for the sake of sending a message and a false message about something that literally never happened for darker, insidious, sociopolitical purposes. And that's what this is in this case. And unfortunately, that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in as always. It's great to be back to our regular episode format. We will be back again next week with episode number 47. Be sure, as always, guys, to follow our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of podcast platforms and social media sites where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And if you guys are feeling ever so generous, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.